literally an institution in this town of digging up old photos, old stories, collections, everything you can imagine under the sun about this great city. Greasy spoons, dives, old clubs. If you love this city, you're going to love it even more. Real people, real stories, real places. This is the Austin Found Podcast. Welcome back to the show. We appreciate you tuning in. I'm J.B. Hager. And I'm Michael Barnes. We're with the Austin American Statesman and Austin 360. And we are at the moment in 2021, just half a mile maybe from the Texas School for the Deaf just down the road on Congress. That's correct. I love that it's referred to as a holy land. We'll get to that in a second and where that came from. Again, Michael, you're going to have to help me piece together some things here, if you don't mind, because we'll do. We'll do. Yeah, when you opened this story, it was pre-Texas School for the Deaf, and you wrote about an interesting person that was referred to as Deaf Smith, born in 1787, a bit of a war hero. He was. He was a uh, somebody who acted as a scout, as a spy, uh, a soldier to during the Texas Revolutionary War. He died in in 1837, soon after Texas had become a republic. But he was very much admired by the other leaders of the uh, Revolutionary War. And there's a county named after him. The school team for the Texas School for the Deaf is the Rangers, because he was a ranger. Uh, he is a, a very important person in that part of Texas history. William B. Travis, a name you hopefully recognize, said he was the bravest of the brave. That's right. That's right. Because a lot of the people in who were his colleagues during that period were sensitized to his deafness, they put together what became in 1856, the Texas School for the Deaf. Now, this was still very early in the uh, establishment of schools, especially for the the deaf. Uh, Texas was actually somewhat of a pioneer in that area. So the Texas School for the Deaf is the oldest continuously open school in the state. There were other parts of this school that, like, so we can all picture the South Congress campus but there were other parts of it. We've, in fact, we've referenced it on another show, the one that is now becoming the Grove off of Bull Creek in 45th. It was for African-American students because uh, even back then they were segregated. And then later when that building was taken down, there was a second campus for the African-American kids that was over off of East 7th Street where the city animal shelter is now and on that land. Once they were integrated, there was some hard feeling as there was when the school district integrated among the the black uh, alumni because they had been excluded from this great campus down here on South Congress. And so they didn't feel like they shared all the same deaf community history. It's interesting to see how that lingers. You know, we've also talked about that area of Austin, just south of the river, very obviously very central. You know, this school for the deaf w- would have been a, a parcel of the old Freeman's colony, correct? Uh, surrounded by it. Uh, no, on, on the south side it was the Freedom Colony and sometimes called Brackenridge, sometimes called Southside, sometimes just called South Austin. 
But there, there was post-emancipation freedom colony from Elizabeth Street down to about Johanna Street in between South Congress and South First. And there was a school within living memory for black kids right there on the creek on Elizabeth and a, a well there. I'm almost positive the people that own that property now don't know that. You have a well on your land. <laughs> There were some of the people from that community worked at the school for the deaf. And also there were uh, clusters of families with deaf members in that same neighborhood who were not African-American, who, including the wife of Steve Baldwin, the deaf leader who turned me on to a lot of these stories, somebody I've known for a long, long time. I want to know more about this. This this is a very important person in the recognition and preservation of that space, right? So Steve Baldwin, who's championing, like, as you mentioned just a bit ago, the uh, the North property sold, developed. The East one became a shelter. Steve Baldwin doesn't want to see any piece of the school for the deaf to be developed. That's right. And what precipitated this particular story was that a uh, legislator had said the the school need a lot of of repairs and deferred maintenance, as they call it. And the uh, legislator said, I believe it was a state senator said, well, why don't you just sell or lease some of your land? You, you're right on this valuable land on South Congress. You're less than a mile from downtown. And, you know, South Congress is booming. And the deaf community just went, they were not having any of that because all through the history of the deaf school there since 1856. It's been a, a magnet for people, even after they've graduated. It's it's where they came back to be part of a community. And the idea of any of that land going to some, to be a Dunkin' Donuts or something is, of course, Dunkin' Donuts could not afford to go on that property. <laughs> If you look at what's in across the street at Music Row, um, there's no Dunkin' Donuts over there. Now, they have leased out a little part of their land. I don't know if you've noticed on South First Street. Uh, I believe it's to Spectrum for a um, some kind of switching facility. But that one is, is very discreet. The idea that uh, you would commercialize this land that has been treasured by generations of families with deaf members. One I want to bring up real quickly is not in the story, but is Homer Thornberry. Now, Homer Thornberry lived on Johanna Street right across from Magnolia South, and both his parents were deaf, and they taught at the school. He was hearing and learned a lot from his neighbors, and he went on to be our U.S. congressman after... LBJ moved up to the Senate. And then LBJ, he was a good congressman. LBJ said, well, I think I need you as a federal judge. <laughs> and so appointed him to the Fifth Circuit. And of course, uh, Thornberry didn't really want to do that, but he was asked out to the ranch. And that means only one thing. <laughs> you only go to the ranch to say yes to LBJ. And then he was nominated for the Supreme Court. Uh, and this complex deal where, where somebody was going to move up to chief justice and he was coming to come in as a new justice. But the the politicking on it and a lot of it had to do with race and a lot of it had to do with what was the desegregation of the South. 
And Thornberry ended up not becoming a Supreme Court justice. Uh, Texas has only had one U.S. Supreme Court justice, Tom Clark. And so he, Homer Thornberry, a uh, native Austinite, son of uh, deaf parents, uh, very much part of our neighborhood over here, all because the School for the Deaf had created community around it. You know, on a side note as well, my my wife, her, her grandparents on her mom's side, uh, they're no longer with us. I wish they were to, to discuss this, right? They met as students at the School for the Deaf. They were both. Really? Yeah. Wow. And obviously did all their education there, came up from Houston to go to the state school. And her grandfather was a board member for many, many, many years. And they would go on high school dates to the, to the theater down on Live Oak. Oh, wow. The Austin Theater, as it was what it was called. Yeah. And so my mother-in-law, my wife's mother, growing up with both parents being deaf, uh, went on to be an interpreter for the county. She's since retired from that county job, but a big part of my wife's family came from that school. I was very lucky in graduate school to get to know Steve Baldwin, the, who uh, written uh, wonderful books on deaf history and culture. And because he was in the same doctoral program I was in, in theater history and criticism. And my mentor was his mentor, Oscar Brockett. And we've stayed in touch all these years and get together every once in a while. And he had me on campus to be a guest. He has done a lot of work on deaf history. And it sounds like he did a lot of work and maybe still continues to, I mean, someone has to work and fight to right. preserve any chunks of this campus being sold. Is that still an ongoing? No, I think they effectively killed that. It's something of, of great pride, a great sense of respect for the legacy of the, the people that came before them there. And the campus is beautiful. It's not open to the general public except during, you know, like football games and pancake breakfasts and stuff like that. But if you ever get a chance to be invited on campus, go. It's it, the the buildings are lovely and the the land is is quite precious and it's very high up. So you often see uh, photographic views of uh, what was then downtown Austin, not much of a skyline from the School for the Deaf and just as you do from the hill where St. Ed's is on. It's played a big part in our history and in, in um, s several professions in town, for instance, a lot of people that worked on the presses at the Statesman were students of the School for the Deaf alumni. Oh, wow. As I drive around Austin and I see street names, anytime I can connect them to this show, it's kind of fun. So I'm going to jump back just a little bit because the land where the campus is was purchased from the the Swisher family. The Swisher farm was on both sides of Congress Avenue. They owned some of the land that, that was, it was originally part of the Decker League, like Decker Lake and Decker Lane. And these leagues were enormous. These were land grants. And the Swishers bought about a thousand acres of it on the South side. And they became the, the people who ferried people back and forth for charge uh, across the Colorado River where the Congress Avenue Bridge is now. They were the ones that promoted South Austin as a future suburb of the city. This is in the mid-19th century. And Swisher was very much involved in the Republic of Texas and things that went on back then. 
I think I know where you're going with this, but the streets over on my side of Congress Avenue are all named for the Swisher children. So Elizabeth, Mary, Annie, Ron Monroe, Milton, all of these are, are Swisher names. Gibson was Gibson. name too. Yeah. Now it's just it's fun to connect the dots on on these street names. They they mean something. And and the, there was a, a, a tradition that said they were named after uh, the Swisher family's slaves, uh, and that's not true because I've been able to go back and see the uh, genealogy, and these were the names of their children. And also, I have been in touch with a descendant of the Swisher family who has a record of the names of people who were enslaved to their family and and they're not the same as these street names. So that's, uh, was kind of fanciful. And so, yeah, it was the children of the, and the original Swisher farmhouse, which was built over is over on like uh, Academy overlooking the Willie Nelson studios things there. And the guy's spending a lot of money and care, uh, refurbishing that house and renovating it. But the basement made out of homemade bricks was the Swisher's basement. So their house was on that hill. Oh, wow. So they were on your side of Congress. <laughs> we have kind of a Congress rivalry, Michael and I. Yes. Uh, we're on Bolden <laughs> <laughs> and y'all are on Travis. Travis and, and I think you referenced there, there are still some lingering street signs from that era. Yes. Uh, uh, when we moved in the neighborhood, we at first couldn't figure out what, they meant, but they were slow signs like church or school or whatever. But these red death peds, P-E-D-S for pedestrians. And it took me a while to figure out what that was about. All part of the Texas School for the Deaf community. I'm dying to get on that campus sometime now. You've really in- intrigued me. But uh, again, great story. And I have to reference the title of the story, which I, I think I-, I glossed over because you when you wrote this article, you called it a holy land, which was how Steve Baldwin referred to it. Yeah. And that really, you know, stuck with me because you have hallowed ground where something happened. And sometimes it's a battlefield and sometimes it's a place where laws were given or someplace, whatever. But this too is a hallowed ground. This is a place where generation after generation after generation of deaf and hard of hearing uh, students and faculty and all the people that support them were all drawn to this land and consider it uh, a, a holy place. That story is referenced in volume two of Indelible Austin, if you would like to pick that up. Volumes one to three are currently out at this time as of February 2021. More to come because I know you are finalizing volume four. Still working on that? There's still some copy editing and indexing and certain kinds of things that need to be done. But yeah, I'm, I'm finished with the texts. Excellent. And if you want to take your love of history a little bit wider... Uh, sign up for Think Texas. That's right. It's a free digital weekly newsletter that is distributed statewide called Think Texas. You can get it at the newsletters page at uh, statesman.com. And it is something that we share with our other USA Today network papers, part of the Gannett chain. And that's a lot of fun. It's kind of parallel to what we're doing here on Austin Found. 
We appreciate you tuning in. Pass it on to your friends. Share on socials. The show is growing and we greatly appreciate you tuning in. Email your, your responses and tips and questions. We always appreciate that and we always follow up. It's jhager, H-A-G-E-R, at statesman.com or mbarnes at statesman.com. Thanks for tuning in. Happy trails. <laughs>